Father, you've done it again. You, in your mercy and your grace, have allowed us to come and to gather, to worship freely, to sing, to hear the teaching of your scriptures. Father, I pray that as we hear today, may your word stir our hearts. May it challenge us and may it also encourage us because of the grace that you provide. I pray that we will leave here as people that not only confess Christ, but people that also desire to live as we're taught through your scriptures, abiding in your word, abiding in you and in your strength. Help us to do that today. I pray for those that are here, Father, that are having a, a hard morning, maybe even a hard week. I even heard of a brother who just a few minutes ago, his dad had a stroke. And, and I pray, God, overwhelming grace and comfort for this family and for those that are in needing of encouragement and hope this morning may your word do that for that person that doesn't know you this morning and is here there's no coincidence you brought them here so that they may hear of your word and may it penetrate hearts may they see how much you love them and want a relationship with them I pray for the team that's gone and left this morning to serve in Alaska. Mercy, grace for your glory and their joy. Use them in ways that only you can get the glory for it, God. And for the rest of the world, our partners, right here in our backyard and to the ends of the earth, may they stand firm in your truth. Father, we need you more than ever this morning, and we pray all these things. In the mighty, mighty name of Jesus Christ, amen. Amen. Thank you, Ronnie, very much. We are going to be in Second Peter, and I would just ask you, if you have a Bible, a device, flip there, tap and scroll your way to Second Peter chapter 1. A few weeks ago when we were here, we looked at verses 3 to 4, and what we focused on there was that the Christian journey is full of grace and full of grit. God has given us all that we need for a godly life. In fact, he's made promises that extend into eternity. And because of this, we should, as Peter says, make every effort to continue to grow in Christ. Because of so much grace, because of what God has done, make every effort to grow in Christ. In these verses that Peter, that uh, Ronnie not to be confused with St. Peter, um, Ronnie read for us in Peter's letter, um, he is going to focus us on our effort. He's going to say make every effort in very specific ways. And he gives us a list of eight virtues, really seven virtues adding on to faith. Now, please do not think that I'm going to preach an eight-point sermon. No way. Nobody can take an eight-point sermon, not even me. So one-point sermon with eight sub-points. That's what we're doing this morning. It's a one-point sermon with eight sub-points. Oh, my. Um, you have that list that, that Ronnie read, and I would just encourage you 
to consider this week memorizing that list. It's short. There's eight words. Man, this is the Christian life and the Christian journey, what God calls us to be. Maybe even as you're memorizing it, you want to pick just one of those virtues that you're like, man, that is an area that I have got to make progress in and really focus on that. Pray it in, live it out. And as I love to say, if you're really bold and your marriage is strong, like you're halfway through re-engage and you ask your spouse, what virtue do I need to add in? I would encourage you to do that, depending on if you're feeling risky or not. Um, Maybe with these seven virtues on top of faith, you want to take one of them each day this week, pray it in in the morning, and look for very specific ways to live it out. Because what I do want to do is try to describe these virtues for us that Peter calls us toward. Where Peter is moving in this text for us is to move us toward confidence and stability in the Christian journey. He wants us to put our Heads on our pillows at night, confident in our relationship with Christ. But he also wants us to live productive and fruitful, fruit-bearing lives in the world that God has called us to live in. So that's where he's moving us to. So what he says is, he really challenges us, don't stop at faith. Faith is the start of the Christian journey, but it's not the end. And so he calls on us, make every effort to add these virtues into this faith that we have received from Christ. And I would just encourage us to consider this morning, don't save your best and most focused effort for your job. Now, your boss deserves your best and focused effort, but don't save it only for your job or for your marriage and family or for even your hobby. No, Peter invites us to exert our most focused effort in this direction. Again, because of God's grace, giving us what we need for a godly life, now make every effort to add virtue, goodness into faith. And when you look at that word add, you might be as bored as I am. You might think math class which is just on the horizon for some of you. Sorry, it's August 1st, so I have to mention school for some. But this word ad is not from math class. It's actually from Hollywood. In Peter's day, they had theater productions, and there were wealthy people in the city who would invest large sums of money to supply, to add to the cast whatever they needed for set, for wardrobe, for pyrotechnics, for the crew, for the cast, everything. And it's incredible. I mean, in our day, it's phenomenal. They couldn't even imagine it back in Peter's day. Recently, I took my boys and we went to see Space Jam, as such a boy movie with LeBron James. The cost of that film was $150 million dollars. More than a million bucks a minute. More than a million bucks a minute. This little innocent word, ad, comes from that idea. It refers to the person who would supply all that money to create that play to entertain a city. Peter wants us to think that way about our own lives. 
to take these virtues that God has given to us and build a life, not to entertain people, but for the pleasure and the glory of God himself. But he talks about it in extravagant, over-the-top, lavish ways because these people, the word is choreographer, these people who supplied this money, invested this money in these plays, it was always extravagant, over-the-top, the few times that this word is used in the New Testament, God is always the actor. So Paul will use it when he says God supplies, that's the word, God supplies the Holy Spirit to those who put faith in Jesus. Same word. Here in 2 Peter, Peter is going to say God is going to supply a grand entrance into glory. God gives it. This is the only instance right here where we are called to add, to supply, to build into our faith. And it's the perfect word because it talks about this cooperation. As I've been suggesting, Peter says, God has given you everything you need for a godly life, so make every effort to add, to supply in the virtue that he's giving you, build it into your life. The love that he's given you, build it into life. The self-control that he's given to you, build that into your life. Activate it, put it into motion. God has given all this and there's much work to do. As Peter Davids, one of those smart commentators on 2 Peter says, I think he says, yes, we do not automatically become more virtuous as, as if God infused virtue into us intravenously. Now, we must make plans. We must expend effort. So Peter is saying, don't stop with faith. Faith is the start. Faith alone in Christ is what a person needs for salvation. Peter is not imagining making ourselves more acceptable to God. Christ did that for us. What Peter is talking about is living out this faith that Christ has purchased for us. And he gives us these eight virtues. Again, not to be confused with eight points in a sermon, just subpoints. Trusting people and good people and learning people and self-controlled people and persevering people and godly people and church-loving people and world-loving people. What sort of people shall we be, Peter says here? Come to this, come to this inspired, God-given list. Now, it's funny when you pick up commentaries, and Richard would tell you this, we read these guys who've given their lives to study books like this and to teach it. They're, they're super smart guys. You'll read a, a commentary, and the commentary, one of the authors will say, man, this order, the order here is very important. I mean, don't even think about adding learning before becoming a good person, and self-control has to follow this. And then you'll pick up another person and they'll say, nah, the order can't be that, much, that important because you have to have some learning even before goodness. And so you got smart guys who love Jesus both ways. And sometimes it's hard to make a decision as to why this order? What is significant about it? Here's what I can say for sure, at least two things. The fact that Peter starts with faith and ends with love is the whole Christian journey in two words. They oftentimes occur together. It starts with faith in Christ. It doesn't start with love. And it doesn't simply end with faith. 
It starts with faith in Christ and it keeps building to lives that are full of love. It's all that people know us to be are loving, loving people. But why does he tie it like this? It's very unusual in the Bible. Add goodness to faith and then add knowledge to goodness. Why does he tie it so tightly like that? I think the other thing that Peter is getting across to us is that it is not an either or. These are all bound up together like a chain welded closely together. You don't get one without the other. So somebody might say, I'm super good with knowledge. I love adding learning. I love adding biblical learning. I jump in every Bible study that's imaginable. But you know, self-control, nah, not so much. Peter says, that's not the way it works. You've got to add, keep adding one to the other. It's a both and, not an either or. I mean, imagine a person with faith and no love. And imagine a person with love and no faith. No, it's not either or. It's both and. Peter says, add to your faith goodness. Faith, as I've been saying, is foundational and we shouldn't assume it. Even here in the Bible Belt. Peter is not talking about just being a religious person or being a faith kind of person. For Peter, faith is very specific. He is talking about faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Faith for Peter focuses on who Christ is and what he's done to atone for your sins and to provide forgiveness for your wrongs. I mean, think of it this way. Virtue without faith makes you a moral person, but not a forgiven one. Faith accesses the forgiveness that Christ has won for us. And what this faith does is it runs again and again and again to the cross of Christ, and it runs nowhere else. When I've stumbled again and need forgiveness again, where do I run? I don't run to church to get forgiveness. I don't run to a pastor to get forgiveness. I don't run to charitable giving to atone for my wrongs. I don't even run into a Bible study to find forgiveness. I run only to the cross of Christ. And friends, that is the heart of Christianity. Maybe this is the first time you've been in a church in a long time. This is the central message of the Bible. That Christ has done for you what you could never imagine. You can't do for yourself that he has purchased salvation, eternal salvation for you so that instead of being under God's judgment, which I deserve, I know God's grace eternally in heaven. I wonder if you've run there. I wonder if you've run to the cross of Christ and if you run there only. Faith says there's no backup plan. All my eggs are in this basket. This is it. This is my hope in life and death. Only Jesus Christ. Now, Peter in 2 Peter goes on, and I would encourage you to do this. It takes 20 minutes to read 2 Peter. I would encourage you this afternoon to to look at 2 Peter 2 because what he's going to do is he's going to go on and talk about false teachers and false Christians, and Peter's going to challenge them. A lot of false teachers coming to the church. The false teachers and the false Christians in the church just down the road from Peter They wanted to have faith and then do what you please. 
And it felt good, and it almost sounded right, you know, like I've been saying, faith alone, faith alone, that's it, faith alone. We believe that. And they were also saying we're free in Christ. Christ has made us free so we can live life as we please. I'd imagine if they had email, they would have shot Peter an email as this little letter is circulating around, and they would have had a lot of unkind, straightforward, blunt things to say to Peter. But one of the accusations would be that Peter is a legalist calling for all this effort and insisting on growth in virtue and godliness. Peter is teaching us there is a certain kind of life that grows out of this life of faith and that is aligned with this life of faith. And Peter describes it. It's just seven virtues. The first one is good, virtuous people. It's surprising that Peter starts here. It's not a word that's common in the Bible, but it was a word that was common in Peter's day. It's like Peter has stopped by Barnes and Noble, grabbed a drink, gone back to the self-help and religious section and started looking at what was available. And there was book after book after book on virtue and what the good life looks like and what does it take to be a good person. And he takes that word, right out of Aristotle. He takes that kind of word and says, Christians are called to be these kind of virtuous people. Everyone was talking about it in his day. And Peter has taken the word right off the bookshelf and put it right here. It's a huge word. It's a sprawling kind of word. The Christian is called to a life of goodness, by which Peter especially means a life worthy of respect. A virtuous kind of life. The kind of life worth imitating. Lead that kind of life. Build that lavishly into your life. For us, a virtuous person is always an ethical person. One who makes ethical choices at work. One who treats our colleagues with justice and fairness. A virtuous person seeks to tell the truth and remain pure. She's not ashamed to strive to live a moral and upright life. Interestingly, the writers of Peter's day would put forward their own kind of virtues. And there's a lot of overlap with Peter's list here. The good person, first century writers would say, the good person, this virtuous person is full of courage. And in a minute, we're going to talk about perseverance, which is one face of courage. In Peter's day, they were talking about self-restraint as a key virtue. And Peter's going to go on and call us to self-control. In Peter's day, they said a, a virtuous person is a benevolent person. And Peter ends there with love for the church and love for the world, full of benevolence. It shouldn't surprise us that non-Christian friends find important virtues in this world too and live virtuous lives too. After all, this is God's world, and we are all made in God's image. But I can't imagine striving to live this way without the power of Christ. What an incredible advantage that we have to have the Holy Spirit working in us who believe in Christ to become just such people, these kind of virtuous people. Peter says, hey, build this into your life. Don't stop with faith. Add lavishly, use all your effort to build virtue and goodness into your life. Being a good person is good, but it's not good enough. 
We must not stop there. There is so much more to supply. Peter goes on, secondly, to say we should be learning people. Learning people. And Peter loves this word. At the beginning of 2 Peter, he says, God's grace has come to you through your knowledge of Jesus Christ. That's the idea, knowledge. And then at the end of 2 Peter, Peter is going to say, grace and peace is ours, but grow in grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And here in this list, he stirs us up to fuller knowledge. Now, Peter is not thinking about Wikipedia. He's not thinking about Barnes and Noble, reading every book imaginable. For Peter, knowledge is specifically knowledge of Christ, like faith is faith in Christ. Peter is calling these Christians who know a lot about Jesus to not stop, to not think they've arrived in their knowledge of Jesus Christ. I don't know if you're like me. I had great privileges that come along with being born and raised in church. But one of the disadvantages is that you come to feel like you know all the stories. I mean, you've heard it all. And you might even trick yourself into thinking, as I have done, I know what I need to know. I know what there is to know about Jesus. And you hate to admit it, because if you get to that point, it kind of becomes boring. The most interesting man on planet Earth is sort of boring. Friends, I just want to encourage you. We are not done knowing Christ. <laughs> even if you've been studying and knowing Christ for decades, we are not done knowing Christ. None of us is. Our minds are not too full of the majesty of Jesus Christ. Our minds are not too full of the life and the miracles and the teaching and the cross and the resurrection of Christ. Now, when we're honest, our minds might be too full of the lives of our Facebook friends. Love them all. Our lives could be too full of, uh, our minds could be too full of the lives of the characters of the latest Netflix series. But too full of Christ? Probably not. Knowing Christ is so central for Peter and in the New Testament that the only way to know yourself truly is to know Christ. To know Christ is to begin to see yourself as God, the ultimate one, sees us and thinks about us and describes us. There's a great emphasis on self-awareness and I encourage virtually all of the sort of personality analysis test to get to know more about yourself. But where knowledge of ourselves starts is knowing Jesus Christ. And what Peter does not have in mind is sort of reading passages in the Gospels and stocking up on information. That's not the goal. Otherwise, we'll just become feisty sort of debaters who need to grow in love and self-control. The goal of information and packed into this word knowledge is intimacy. When Peter talks about adding knowledge, he is not just talking about adding facts. He's talking about adding intimacy, and it doesn't stop there. Knowledge is information, particularly about Christ, igniting intimacy, particularly with Christ, and pouring out into a changed life like Christ. 
That is jammed in this word knowledge. Again, as commentator Peter Davids puts it, knowledge that is not turned into practical action. Knowledge that does not produce the character of Jesus in my life is worse than useless. It can even blind me to my true state. So Peter says, who are Christian people? What sort of people should we be learning people? Virtuous people. As we're learning people, we're learning especially more and more about the majesty of Jesus Christ. And then Peter goes on, good people, learning people. And then he says, self-controlled people. This was in stark contrast again to the church down the street from Peter. It was a free-for-all down there. They celebrated freedom while indulging every desire imaginable. Read it in 2 Peter. Adultery was condoned as was greed. They championed freedom while exploiting people. Everywhere there was self-indulgence. It was fine. And I bet they looked at Peter and called him a legalist for calling for self-restraint, self-control. Again, he's not talking about self-control in the same way that the moral teachers of his day is talking about it. He's talking about self-control that grows out of commitment to Jesus Christ. Self-control is a word right out of the sports world, and it fits perfect with the Olympic spirit of our day. In Corinthians, Paul will talk about this word, and it's oftentimes translated strict training, self-control, having power over myself. Just imagine where self-control is valuable. We need self-control for our time. Otherwise, we'll waste our lives. We need self-control for our credit cards. Otherwise, we'll be in debt up to our eyeballs. We need self-control for our words and our eyes. We need self-control for our food intake. We need self-control for our sexual desires. What do we not need self-control for? Only through self-control do God's good gifts remain good gifts. Because even God's good gifts can become slave masters if not for self-control. At times we want what we shouldn't want, right? Self-control holds us back. At other times we want too much of even a good thing. And self-control hits the brakes. We need self-control Every day for all of life. Self-control is so important in the Bible that when Paul was equipping Titus to plant a church in Crete, actually to sort of form up and grow the church on the island of Crete, he said, hey, get the older men together, probably ages 30 and above, older men together, and encourage them to be, here's what he says, to be sober-minded and dignified and self-controlled. There it is for men. And then Paul tells Titus, now when you get the younger men together, and, and again, in this age, younger men is probably ages 12 to 29, somewhere in there. Paul tells Titus, hey, here's what I want you to tell to the younger men. Urge the younger men to be self-controlled. That's it. Just self-control. Start there. Focus there. Help them with that. How crucial is this virtue Solomon, who wrote Proverbs for just such young men and young ladies, he writes in Proverbs 25, 28. 
think. A person without self-control is like a city with broken down walls. Vulnerable. Vulnerable to the enemy at any side. Vulnerable to damage and destruction. A life without self-control is a life heading toward shipwreck. Again, as Solomon says in chapter 523, the young man will die for lack of self-control. He will be lost because of his great foolishness. Now, we are in a culture consumed by rights. We strongly dislike restraint. We like freedom and liberty. We have the right to free speech, and we have a megaphone called social media to say whatever we want as much as we want. Christ will call us to be quick to hear and slow to speak, to apply self-control to our words. Our technology is increasingly in need of self-control. Gentlemen, football season is right around the corner. Cheering loud. Fantasy leagues and all, maybe. Even here, how we use our time is something that we're going to have to say, okay, what does self-control look like here? Who are Christian people Christian people are self-controlled people. To self-control, Peter adds this next virtue, persevering, persevering. Self-control is what we need for our pleasure. Perseverance is what we need for our pain. In a world of ease and in a world of easy outs, we need a generous supply of perseverance. It takes just this kind of perseverance and courage to remain faithful and growing in these virtues, no matter the opposition. School is going to start back for some. You're going to go into your workplace tomorrow. You know that these virtues are oftentimes really disliked. You might experience some shunning, hostility, opposition to living this kind of life. So build perseverance into your world. See, for Peter's audience, it included spouses who would be antagonistic to becoming these kind of people. A culture that was set in opposition to these very kind of people. Perseverance says, I'm in it for the long haul. I'm on this narrow road with Jesus no matter what. I'm going to steady on. I'm committed, as Eugene Peterson put it, to this long obedience, the same direction, living as Christ followers in this world, no matter what. But Peter says, bring perseverance in, add it into your life. Don't skimp, go big, focus on perseverance. And then he says, add godliness too. Again, this is a curious word. The word God is not actually in the Greek word. It's a word that refers to devotion and commitment and religion. For us, it's a word that's translated godliness. And it's a good word. Peter is saying, build into your life this kind of Godwardness, So that your life revolves more and more around God. It's a word that spills out into duty. That's a tough word. It conjures up ideas of legalism, even in my own mind. But duty, while it can devolve into legalism, we won't stay faithful. We won't grow without these habits. Living this kind of Godward life on a day-in, day-out basis, no matter how we feel, no matter the opposition, no matter what comes. 
Godliness is living in the presence of God and it's seen especially in the person of Jesus. You want to see godliness. When Jesus communes with his Father before the cross and says, not my will, but, but yours. Man, that is the center of godliness. No matter what God wants, no matter what God calls me to, I'm going to live this Godward kind of life. To godliness, he says, become church-loving people. Become church-loving people. I don't know how it's translated in your Bible, but mutual affection is how it comes in mine. The word is Philadelphia. You know this word, the city of brotherly love. And everybody agrees when he talks about this, he's talking about love for brothers and sisters in Christ, love for the church. Add this, add a generous, ongoing, over-the-top supply of church love into your life. Now, you and I both know that 2020 was hard on love for the church. We were invited to love brothers and sisters in Christ who wear masks and who don't, who got vaccinated and who didn't, who wore masks and got vaccinated and got neither. And we are called to love brothers and sisters in Christ. Love the church who votes Democrat. Love the church who votes Republican. Love the church who can't vote in good conscience. Because see, foundationally, most importantly is not your political view, but that you are identified as a Christ follower. If you are, we can disagree on a bazillion things. We must love each other. We're in 2021 now but you know as well as I do, there will always be challenges to our love for each other. Peter says, don't stop with a Godward life. Look around you. On a Sunday morning, look around you. Brothers and sisters in Christ whom God loves, love. Fill your life with this. And then he ends with just that simple word, love. To mutual affection, add love. What I've said is world-loving people. Now, Peter obviously has in mind throughout his letters, love God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. That's crucial, no question about it. Love your neighbor as yourself. But especially important to Peter and the writers of the New Testament, starting with Jesus, is to love our enemies, people in the world. Now, you and I both know John says, do not love the world. And we also know that John says, God loved the world. And so, of course, we ought not fall in love with darkness and fleshliness that's in the world. But the people of the world, the people who are set in opposition to you being this kind of virtuous person, perhaps the spouse who is antagonistic to your faith, perhaps the colleague who really is annoyed by you seeking to make ethical decisions. Brothers and sisters, Christ calls us to love that person. Please don't forget, we should never forget, 
We were enemies when Christ loved us. And I trust we'll be able to love many enemies right into the kingdom of God. So, brother, sister, just a couple questions as I close us out. I wonder if your Christian journey looks more like coasting comfortably along or straining ambitiously. Peter would say, whether you've been saved for five years or 50 years, make every effort. Don't quit. There's more to go. If you're not a Christian, I admire you for being in a church on a Sunday morning. If you're not a Christian, let me ask you to consider thinking about this. I think, and I may be wrong on this, feel free to challenge me on it afterwards. Everyone has a virtue and vice list, I think. Everyone looks, look, looks at a list of particular characteristics and says, that's good, that's not. I think that's true. My question for you is this. Who will frame up your virtue and vice list? In other words, here's what I'm asking. Who has the moral authority in your life to call certain things vices and certain other things virtues? You probably know this already. For Christians, Jesus Christ is our moral authority. And you know, we see Jesus Christ as the king over all kings. We see Jesus Christ as the son of God, the second member of the Trinity. But there's a particular reason why we, you are in a company of people who have given Jesus Christ the ability to have moral authority over our lives. This is the man who laid down his life for our redemption. So this is not for us a list of begrudging duties. It is a way of expressing our thanks to the Christ who died for our eternal salvation. That's why we've given him this kind of authority in our lives. And then, Christian friend, one, one just final question. Where does your effort need to be focused now? Here's a list of eight. Where does your effort need to be focused now? What habit needs to be prayed in and lived out? What does that look like? I love how, P, uh, how Richard recently has been encouraging us um, to behold the beauty in the world around us. Peter in this passage too is thinking of beauty. And he's calling us as Christians to contribute to the beauty of the world by living these kind of beautiful good, virtuous, compelling lives so that people will see the beauty of Christ in you and me and be forever changed. Here's how Peter puts it at the very start, toward the start of his first letter. Live such good lives among the pagans that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us. We get the incredible privilege of living these kind of authentic lives, becoming these kinds of people that Christ died to redeem. So brothers and sisters, let me encourage you again, don't stop with faith. Press on, press on to grow more and more into the image of Christ. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you so much for your word We'd be lost without it. 
Thank you for the reminder of your promises to us, which are not just good for this life, but are good for the life to come. Thank you that you've got us secure forever because of Jesus Christ and what he's done. We cling to him only. We run to him only. Thank you, Father, for describing for us the kind of people that you're making us into. And I know that I pray on behalf of so many gathered, maybe everyone in this room, these are the kinds of people we want to become more and more. Please give us the grace to make every effort to keep building out these lives to look more and more like Christ. Even before the, the band plays, let's just play in the background. I would just encourage you, we don't give a come forward invitation, but I would invite you to just respond where you are, considering where specifically God is calling you to grow and to invest extravagantly in your relationship with Christ. Consider that resolve. Take some time just quietly where you are to resolve that to Christ and then we'll conclude our time by worshiping him.